you can change the world. Learn from proven change makers from all walks of life. They'll show you how to raise money, invest for impact, and so much more. You can start small, start today, and never quit. You can change the world by strengthening your superpowers. Now, welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Hello, everyone. I am so excited today. We've got with us Shabar Ali, who is the uh, CEO of Garden for Wildlife. We're going to have such a great conversation. He was at COP28 in Dubai. Uh, He's got a crowdfund campaign going right now. You don't want to miss this episode, so stick around. Uh, Shabar, welcome to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks, Devin. Great to be here. Well, uh, we're we're thrilled to have you. You know, you're you're doing such amazing work. Tell us. Let's start by setting the kind of a, a foundation for our conversation. Tell us about Garden for Wildlife. Yeah, so Garden for Wildlife is unique in a number of different respects. It's actually the culmination of a 50-year-old program that was started by the National Wildlife Federation back in 1973, and the focus has really been mainly for most of those 50 years education of people about the importance of native habitat to protect species like the monarch butterfly, which I think most of the viewers have probably heard about the plight of how how endangered they are right now. Um, But it was more than just monarchs. It's pollinators across the board, which we rely on, and songbirds that rely on them. And so this program has been educational. It's created something called Certified Wildlife Habitats, mainly in people's yards, including my own yard here. There's almost 300,000 of those now across the country created in the last 50 years as well as 10,000 schools, like elementary schools and other places that have habitats that were put in for the kids. But about four years ago, when my family moved to Maryland from California, uh, the house that I bought had a huge lawn, and I'm not a big fan of lawn, I've been gardening for decades. And so I immediately set out to go and put in a uh, garden to help you know the birds and the butterflies and the bees. Um, and it was about that time that this book came out, and I'm just gonna quote Doug Tallamy's book, he's a, advisor of the National Wildlife Federation's book is called Nature's Best Hope, and I highly recommend you read it. People oftentimes say a book changed their lives. This one literally did change my life because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. This company wouldn't exist had I not read the book. And what I discovered in the book was that everything I've been doing for gardening for over 20 years was actually not only not helping the environment, it was actually hurting the environment. And so it was a bit of a, of a jarring moment for me. And the reason was actually very simple. I have been going to the big box garden stores for decades. You know, you can think of the names of those stores and buying the plants that they sold there and putting them in the garden. The problem is that those plants, it turns out, are primarily all invasive species. In fact, I actually went to the local one by me, Googled every single plant in the store, and not one of the plants they sold was a native plant. The problem with that is native plants are actually the food source for the caterpillars of many of the pollinators, the butterflies, the moths, et cetera. And those caterpillars are the food source for the songbirds. And so as the book laid out very clearly, by wiping out all the native beautiful flowers and plants that are out there, we have systematically destroyed not only the pollinators, but over 3 billion pairs of nesting songbirds, which is why you just don't see as many these days. And you, sure, you see sparrows and crows and you know things like that, and pigeons, of course, in every city. But all the beautiful birds that we're used to, the you know, cardinals, wrens, um, you know, blue jays, uh, uh, chickadees, all sorts of things, they've all basically really uh, diminished in terms of population. And so I read the book. I immediately set out to go find native plants. I found out how difficult they were to find. And this is a core problem in the marketplace is a lack of supply. Unless you find like a small local native nursery near you, 
it's oftentimes just impossible to get them. So I went to the National Wildlife Federation. And at the time, I was a uh, one of the global leads for innovation at Accenture, which is a large global consultancy. And I said, I want to do a uh, pro bono project for you, for the National Wildlife Federation. I've been a, a donor for years, so I was able to, to get access to them. And said, we need to solve the problem of supply, and we need to make it easy for people to get these plants so they can put them in their yards and help restore habitat one yard at a time. And we did a series of workshops. and. Um, the result of that was the business plan for this company called Garden for Wildlife, which was going to take all the work they'd done over the previous 47 years and encapsulate it in a business that would source and then ship directly to the doorstep native plants from people's yards. And it was backed by the science and the almost 100-year history of the National Wildlife Federation. And of course, they have millions of members as well, so you had a bit of a ready-made market. Well, we launched the business as part of uh, the National Wildlife Federation department inside. And a year later, uh, I went back to them and said, so this is 2022, was their first full year of sales. I was the very first customer. In fact, those plants are um, thriving in my yard, although it's winter, so right now they're, uh, they're dormant. But uh, the great thing is they're perennials, so they come back year after year. Uh, long story short, I went to them again last year and said, this is a fantastic business opportunity, but it's not going to thrive inside of a not-for-profit because you're not designed to run a business. And they agreed. And they said, we'll spin it out as a for-profit company that they are the majority shareholder of. And then we could bring in outside investors, but on the condition that I would come in and be the CEO. And so I absolutely, I jumped at the chance. I mean, this is like the combination of doing good and doing what I love doing, building companies and having done a few startups in the past, um, as well as all the big corporate work I've done. Uh, I jumped at it. So about 14 months ago, I started as CEO of this business. Um, we've since started to scale the operations. Uh, brought in a number of new people as well, and um, we officially spun out as a separate company with our biggest shareholder being NWF, the National Wildlife Federation, and then the employees. And now we brought in outside investors as well. Uh, we closed a, a safe round, which is kind of like a, an angel round. It was oversubscribed. The National Wildlife Federation was actually our biggest investor. And, uh, and then on the back of that, we launched a crowdfunding, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Well, this is kind of, I mean, this is kind of, this is very cool stuff. Uh, and uh, so let's talk about that uh, crowdfunding campaign that you've got going. Uh, sure. You've already raised a fair bit of money there, but you, you plan to keep the offering open uh, until uh, April. Is that right? Correct. Just after Earth Day, actually. So really to get tied in with the spring planting market. Um, there's a number of, of strategic reasons for doing that. But it's actually I mean, gardening, a lot of people garden in the spring. And so it's a good time to kind of bring it together with them. Here's a chance not only to buy plants from us, which we would love people to do, uh, gardenswildlife.com, but then actually be a shareholder in this business because the native plant business is you know, a multi-billion dollar business today, but it's primarily restoration work. And what we want to do is open up the supply so that everybody can get this easily. One of the biggest challenges of native plants, which I didn't mention is, <coughs> excuse me, um, one of the, the biggest challenges is actually knowing what's native to you. Because of course, every plant is native somewhere. Uh, but the issue is what's native to your specific area. And the National Wildlife Federation actually built a database with the help of, um, it was actually work that was led up, I think, by Professor Talman and some of his, his research students to build what's called the Native Plant Finder database. And that has virtually every tree, shrub, and perennial flower in the United States at the zip code level. And that actually powers our 
e-commerce website. So when you go to our website, you all you do is plug in your zip code and it only shows you plants that are native to you. So you don't have to do any research, say, is this right for me? Is this right in my area? You can just pick the ones that are the color you want, the height you want, they match the soil conditions you want or the amount of light, you know, full sun, partial shade, full shade, et cetera, um, what season they bloom in. And then, or you can buy pre-curated collections if you want something that will cover three seasons and is good for hummingbirds or for monarchs or whatever the thing is you, you like. You don't have to do any of the hard work. You literally just pick what you like, click buy, and um, plants arrive on your doorstep. And it's just uh, so cool that it works so easily to to make a difference. Now, you were at COP28. So I, yeah. I think you must see a connection between this work that you're doing at Garden for Wildlife and climate change. Draw that line for us. Make that connection. Yeah, and it's actually perfect at showing the roots right there because one of the things that uh, we've discovered that's actually really fascinating, uh, people who do research in this area already knew about it, but for me it was kind of eye-opening, is native plants, particularly the perennial flowers and, and grasses and sedges and things like that, have very deep root systems. So compared to turf, which most people have in most of the yards and what we've done across most of North America, which is to rip out plants and put in the sterile lawn because it, I don't know, it's some hold back to European colonial times. Um, those lawns have roots that you'll, most people know only go about six inches deep. You know, if you rip out the lawn, you'll see it's just packed dirt below it. Native plants have roots that go as deep as 15 feet. So it has a number of benefits simultaneously. One is it opens up the ground, which allows for more absorption of rainwater. So when you get storms, instead of the water running off into uh, back into the oceans or down you know, um, storm drains, et cetera, it actually can be absorbed and percolated through the ground. And that's actually really important in a state like where I live in Maryland, there's actually programs like my county, Montgomery County, has a program called Rainscapes that will give you up to $7,500 to plant rain gardens in your yard to help divert the runoff because it protects the Chesapeake Bay. Now you think about all these places where you can put this in. So one of the things I saw at COP was up until recently, the conversation has either been about carbon or about water or about biodiversity or about habitat. And for the first time, I saw this great connecting the dots that people were starting to make, saying, you know, you can't do one in isolation. I was talking with a, a minister from an African nation, and she told me that in order to, to sequester carbon, they went and planted a bunch of gum trees or eucalyptus trees. The problem is those trees are actually native to Australia. And she said, yes, we discovered the problem when they started to destroy the water table because those plants were the wrong plants for the area. And this is part of the issues. You have to put in the plants that spent thousands or millions of years evolving to be in that place. And we all know what happens when you bring an invasive species in, whether it's, you know, uh, something like a, the snakefish or uh, I think they had the cane toads in Australia or whatever. It could be done for the best of intentions or purely by accident, but they disrupt entire ecosystems. And what we're trying to do is help to restore those. And in doing that, you get the benefits of helping biodiversity, helping with water. But oh, by the way, these native plants also sequester a lot of carbon. So it's, it's kind of a, a holistic solution, which is to me very exciting because it, it fits well. And I was actually asked by a number of people, when are we going to be in Europe? And when are we going to be in places like the Middle East where they're actively working on putting in um, uh, plants? And you know, Saudi Arabia has a huge plan for reforesting the desert. Um, but we, we need to finish getting through North America first. So I told them it's gonna be a little while. As you think about uh 
this uh, incredible work. Uh, I, I wanna bring people back for a minute to the crowdfunding campaign. How do people find the campaign? So people are listening to this show and they're saying, man alive, this is something I, I wanna learn more about. Uh, where do they go to learn about this offering? So if you can see the screen, it says invest.gardenforwildlife.com. Uh, that's the place to go. If you just go to gardenforwildlife.com, I think we have a link to it there as well. And on that page, we have a video that shows you about Garden for Wildlife, our history, things we're doing, why what our mission is so important. We also have, of course, all the, the registration documents so you can read the, the, that in detail, learn more about the business. And then we have different tiered offerings that people can invest in order to become a shareholder. And you're buying actual shares. So the, I, I've actually had to stress this with a number of people who've written in during the kickoff of this campaign who said, oh, we're really interested. Um, is this a donation? And I'm like, no, it's not a donation. We're not the not-for-profit. We're owned by, the majority of our shares are owned by the not-for-profit. We are a for-profit company. And this crowdfunding campaign is to provide additional working capital so we can scale faster. So we've already started building things like greenhouses. And this allows us to build more, more quickly so we can increase capacity. Because once we have enough scale, then we can get into places like physical retail, where I believe a huge part of our market opportunity is there's, you know, 150 million or so gardeners out there, many of whom don't know about native plants, who are people like me four years ago. And I want to have our plants. I, I envision a future where you walk into your favorite big box retailer, and you can think of the names, you know, the Lowe's, Home Depot's, Ace, uh, Walmart even, Tractor Supply, and there will be a section that is native plants by Garden for Wildlife, which, oh, by the way, from the National Wildlife Federation, we have partners like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and a bunch of others uh, that brings a huge credibility to the science of the plants that you are picking and the plants you see will be native to where you are. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, as you, as you, uh, we're going to come back. <laughs> I want to keep going, but we're going to come back. We're going to take a quick break, folks. Uh, I, I'm, I'm honored to have with us today, uh, Shabar Ali, who is the CEO of Garden for Wildlife, uh, we'll be talking to him when we come back about his superpower. So stick around. You don't want to miss this. Want to learn from the world's great changemakers? Find your superpower. Subscribe to the Superpowers for Good newsletter at superpowersforgood.com. Make your strengths into superpowers that will change the world. Join the super crowd today. Superpowers number four, good.com. Join us for Super Crowd 24 for two full days of wealth and impact creating content at this virtual conference on April 17th and 18th. We'll have 100 speakers and live pitch sessions. Learn how to invest like a pro and raise money from the crowd. Save 50% with the discount code SUPERCROWD at thesupercrowd.com. Join us at Super Crowd Baltimore to connect with community-focused business leaders and investors working to support diverse founders, social entrepreneurs, and community builders. Learn how to raise money from the crowd and how to invest like a pro. March 21st at the B&O Rail Museum. Register today at thesupercrowd.com. Welcome back, everyone. I should note that uh, Shubber will be speaking. I'm here with Shubber Ali, the CEO of Garden for Wildlife, and he'll be speaking at Supercrowd Baltimore. We're excited for that. Uh, but we're going to shift gears with Shubber and talk a little bit now about his superpower. So stick around for this important conversation. Shubber, you're a big deal. 
I mean, for crying out loud, let's let's acknowledge <laughs> facts for what they are. Uh, you know, you you had uh, you had a stellar career up to this point, and now you're the CEO of a company that, while uh, sort of a startup, has deep roots in a well-established nonprofit. And the whole, I mean, you're a big deal. What is your superpower? Well, first off, I have to say, um, you two could not avoid this business is just full of puns. And we actually joke about that in the office regularly because we almost need to have like a swear jar, but a pun jar. So deep roots, yes, we do have deep roots because we are a plant business uh, and they have very deep roots. So my superpower, um, I hate terms like that, I'll be honest, because I, I'm, I'm uh, uh, I, so what I think I'm particularly good at over time that I figured out is identifying the right problem to solve. And it's actually something I spent a lot of time with my clients when I was at, at Accenture, when I was at Salesforce as their VP of innovation, working on my own startups. Uh, I've gotten better at it, I will say. So, you know, early on, I think my one of the first startups I worked in, which was an AI startup 22 years ago, um, Infrascape, we were way ahead of our time in a lot of ways in terms of the technology wasn't uh, ready. Data sets were too small. It was, uh, but the but the big thing was we just talked technical to people and, and it was a good learning experience looking back. So over time, I've honed what I think is my uh, my ability, which is to actually understand what is the right problem to solve. There's a great quote that uh, I've uh, used for over a decade, and no one really knows where it came from. It's attributed to Einstein, but it actually turns out that's not correct. And one of my colleagues pointed that out to me, a German colleague. And so I've since stopped attributing it to Einstein, but it sounds like something he would say, which is, if you have an hour to solve a problem, spend 55 minutes defining it and five minutes solving it. And to me, having spent most of my career in innovation, I love that that approach because the best innovations I've ever seen out there of, of any kind have this almost duh quality. Like when you see them, it's just so obvious that that's the thing to do, but nobody had done it or even seen it until somebody did it. And it's because we have these, these blinders or these orthodoxies uh, that limit the way we think they're just how we get conditioned over time in whatever environment you're in you we as humans we build heuristics we build patterns and so we stop to see the new stuff we don't look at things some people use the expression you know childlike wonder or whatever or way you want to approach it or the six whys but when you can keep digging and really understand the right problem to solve the solution is actually pretty obvious and that's the thing that i'm i think i'm pretty good at. i was actually in a conversation this morning with a with a friend uh, here in the DC area, and we spent an hour and a half talking about a range of things in the tech world, and that that very point came up multiple times. Is you know understanding what is really the right problem to solve. It, it that is such a great superpower. Uh, I mean that is that is really powerful. Let's let me ask you to think of a specific example of a time when you deployed this right when you identified the right problem and solved it uh and and it mattered can you think of a can you think oh, of an yeah. example yeah so i'll give you i'll give you uh one full example in two parts of ones garden for wildlife is the result of understanding the right problem to solve which is it wasn't enough to educate people about native plants because frankly they've been doing it for almost 50 years and yet it's only getting worse it's supply it was lack of supply and then awareness to the people who needed to know about it i was that customer i gladly shopped at places and bought all the wrong stuff because I didn't know what the right stuff was. And then it wasn't available once I did figure it out. So 
that's an example of saying, okay, what do we really have to solve for? It's kind of an arc of awareness, education, access. Um, but probably my favorite example of all time is a client that almost did what we came up with. And my, and my colleagues from, from my Salesforce days and I still talk about that being the best project that we did, uh, which was we were working with the Yellow Pages, White Pages company. Uh, and this is back in 2013. So if you think about Yellow Pages, White Pages, you know, after the 1990s, almost nobody remembers what the phone book was, except something that as soon as it showed up on your doorstep, you drop it in the recycling bin or throw it away if you didn't recycle. But um, they still dutifully were publishing this thing year after year. And small businesses were dutifully buying ads in them, maybe less, and it was getting a little bit thinner, but it was still the book, the, a business. And at that time, the business was a $4 billion valuation business. We got brought in uh, by the telco that owned the business that actually published the yellow and white pages. And they just wanted to do like a digital project because we were Salesforce and we were doing digital transformation. And our approach, which was this approach of identifying the right problem to solve, really spent a lot of time digging into what's it like to be the customer. The customer is either the small business or the person who lives in that neighborhood. Because if you think about it, why was the phone book invented? It was invented to solve a problem. The problem was actually, how do I connect with consumers in my own neighborhood? And so for almost 100 years, the answer was publish a book. Well, book's gone. The problem is still the same problem. Small businesses actually were having a harder time connecting with people in their local area because of Amazon and all these other things, national brands who have huge advertising budgets and greater reach and all of that. And so they were struggling even more. So we said, well, what you need to do is actually focus on the small business and the consumer. And how do you reconnect them in a digital age? And we created a whole platform and a, and a, and a model, but we started with the Simon Sinek approach, which was the, what's the why of your organization rather than the, the what, which is the book. We said, okay, book's dead, forget about it. The real problem you're trying to solve is how do I connect these organizations and how do I let small businesses compete in a world that is now digital? When, for instance, simple example, you can't have a loyalty program as a plumber or as a, you know, a bakery or many other places. First off, loyalty programs are badly named because very few people are actually loyal. It's just a point system. But two, how often am I going to use that plumber? How often am I going to use that electrician? So individually, they couldn't compete with big point systems that like Safeway might have or some other big national brand. But what if you could create a point system that worked for every small business in the same neighborhood so I could buy from the plumber, get services and earn points that I could use at the florist, or I could then use that fill in the blank other small business, the, 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 the shoe cobbler or whatever. And they loved it. When we presented that solution to the CEO and his team, he said, we have to do this. And then this is where I discovered how big corporate politics interferes with corporate innovation. The CIO of the telco, their response was, there's no way in heck we're using Salesforce. Now, again, this was 2013. It was still early in the days of Salesforce being an enterprise tool, not anything like they are now. You know, now there's 70,000 people. Back then, there were 7,000. So they hadn't quite made it in the big corporate world. And that killed the project. Two years later, that company was sold for $500 million. Right? So their value dropped you know, 87%. Um, I still believe that that was a solution. I still believe the solution is needed. But the problem to solve, I feel like that was the, one of the best examples we ever nailed. That's a great example. 
great example. Uh, and I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, listen, as we wrap up, Shiver, I wonder if you would take just a minute and tell people how they can, again, reiterate how to invest, but also tell people how they can, you know, use Garden for Wildlife to get plants, how they can connect with you. People want to connect with you. They want to follow you and on social media. They want to, you know, connect. So, so give them the best ways to connect with you as well as how to get Absolutely. plants and how to invest. Thank you, Devin. So first off, invest.gardenforwildlife.com has all the information about the offering. And you can literally just use your credit card and or I think your ACH as well and um, buy for as little as $250. You can become a shareholder. Um, if you invest uh, at 10000 or more, uh, I don't know why my staff put this on there, but you can have dinner with me. Um, so I will take you out to dinner. Uh, the second thing I would actually say is go get this book. Go get this book and read it and you'll understand why we exist and why you should be part of our journey. Nature's Best Hope by Doug Kelly. Um, and then uh, lastly, I'd say we're actually, I'm really excited. We're about to launch. I think by the time your, your uh, viewers are, are watching or listening to this, we will have just launched a new portal. So if, you're, if you have kids who are, say, in elementary school, we're launching a platform to allow uh, PTAs, and then we'll extend to other groups like you know, scouts and other things. But we're starting with PTAs to fundraise by selling native plants. So you can actually do a plant fundraiser and it can provide a garden for your school if you want or just funds or both to your PTA while helping us get more customers on board and get more, more native plants out there. Because at the end of the day, our mission is to increase habitat, sequester more carbon and bring back the biodiversity. That's it. Fantastic. Well, Shubber, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you every success. Thank you, Devin. It was a pleasure being here. All righty. Let's do some good. <laughs>